listening to the weekly podcast presented by the Lighthouse Midlothian. For more information, please visit us at www.dfwlighthouse.org. Thank you and God bless. this time to you. Open our ears and open our eyes to see and to hear that we may understand what you are showing us by your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, I had so much fun last week. We learned about the incredible and elegant design involved in the triumph of the cross. Who enjoyed that last week? Like, I was, both hands in the air, that was just powerful. And I was, I was just so pumped to be able to, to teach on that. We used the account of Haman and Mordecai from the book of Esther. And we constructed a, pers- yeah, yeah, yeah. So Haman, the snake. We used Haman and Mordecai to construct a perspective of how the powers of darkness were defeated by Jesus Christ, our crucified Messiah. We saw how Haman was publicly humiliated and made a spectacle before all of the kingdom. He was conquered by the very scheme he had devised, and he was hung on the very gallows he had constructed. In the same way, we learn that all of the rulers of darkness were made a spectacle before the entire universe. They had been conquered by the very scheme they had devised. They had been exposed and humiliated by the cross of their design. Satan thought that by crucifying the Messiah, he could prevent the Jewish people from representing God's rule and reign on earth. But he had such tunnel vision. Guys, I'm just, I'm summarizing last week so we can move into today. He had such tunnel vision. Not only would the Jewish people be reconciled to God, not only would all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, be reconciled to their father, but all of creation would be set on a collision course for returning to their creator. And what I found most amazing in all of this is that according to Ephesians chapters 1, through three, God had already designed this reconciliation for us. He kept it hidden from all of creation. It was a mystery to angelic beings, to forces of darkness, to all of creation. It was a secret. It was a mystery. In his letters to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter three, verse nine through 11, Paul states that he has been given the grace to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Since the time of Adam and Eve's first sin, God's hidden plan has always been to restore us, or his creation, 
to himself. And it is through us, the church, that this mystery is revealed. Now, Paul states that we as a church represent the manifold wisdom. So I wanted to explore that word manifold. This word manifold is interpreted multifaceted, the multifaceted wisdom of God. And to understand this, I want you to take a moment in your mind's eye, and I want you to picture a diamond, just a big diamond, multifaceted. You know, each, the word faceted or facet means face. Think of the many faces of a diamond. As the many faces of a diamond reflect light at differing angles, the appearance of the whole diamond at once provides a shimmering brilliance. In our variety and diversity, each one of us reflects God's love in different ways. We each work out our calling with the unique gifts given us by our Creator, and somehow, by the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit, we, as a church, become a brilliant reflection of God's glory on earth. So it has been said that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Even so, when we display God's unity as the body of Christ, we pierce the darkness. This same word, manifold, forgive me. This same word, manifold, is a form of the Greek word used in the Old Testament in the Septuagint translation. It's the same Greek word used to describe the many splendid colors of Joseph's coat. We are a beautiful juxtaposition of color and pattern, each of us woven together in our mother's womb and then interconnected in a seamless tapestry. The church can shine with the brilliance of a diamond. Each of us a beautiful display of pattern and texture and tapestry. And it's a beautiful thought to ponder. But we can't miss the imperative introduced by these pictures. See, a tarnished surface will not reflect light. A tapestry cannot be appreciated if it is tearing at the seams. The representation of the whole is always subject to the proper presentation and relation of its constituent parts. This verse that we're reading from Paul, this verse about the manifold wisdom of God being made apparent or revealed through us, the church, it implies and it suggests that the degree to which we, the church, are spiritually united portrays to the rulers and authorities in spiritual realms God's manifold wisdom. Are we a true reflection of God's glory, or have we tarnished its brilliance? Have we sabotaged our representation of God's manifold wisdom on earth? Even more importantly, consider the tactics to which our enemy will resort
See, we know that in the spiritual realms, God's rule and order are immovable. They are unshakable. But what do these spiritual authorities see when they look at us? See, there's a spiritual order, but then as we've been talking, I'm sure you've realized in all the teachings I've been doing, they are all about the same thing. It is about our unity given us, a work completed that we are living out. There is a difference between what is spiritual and what is physically manifested on earth. They know that God's rule is immovable and unshakable in spiritual realms. They cannot challenge it. But on earth, is it translating? If it is in our unity that we display God's glory, then we should not be surprised that our commitment and our love for one another is the target for our enemy's schemes. Is it any wonder that Christian marriages are tempted toward divorce? Is this not why when we leave our children spiritually and physically unguarded, that our children begin to resent and rebel against their parents? Is it any wonder that brothers and sisters in Christ are blinded by pride and fall prey to accusation, prejudice, and blind ambition? See, we are heartbroken. We are heartbroken at these things. But how could we be surprised? Satan hates the order of God. Uh-oh. <laughs> Say, <laughs> it's bound to happen one of these days. I keep. Satan hates the order of God. He despises the union that God so desires with us. He was successful. We learned this last week. He was successful in frustrating that union with Adam and Eve. For millennia, he held power and sway over God's created order. It was a power that was not his. It was given him by idol worship and idol minds. He derived his own twisted glory from subverting God's natural order. Last week, using Mordecai and Esther, we learned that through the triumph of the cross, God made a spectacle of the powers of darkness. Jesus came and upset the plans of the prince of the air, and he stripped. You guys remember that? Stripped the rulers and authorities of all their authority, of all of their power. Void of his power and authority over humanity, Satan has one last resort, and that is to continue. you got to hear this. Void of his power and authority over humanity. You remember last week how humiliated Haman was walking into King Xerxes after, after leading Mordecai through the city on the, on the king's horse? Remember that? How humiliated he was? Imagine the humiliation of being exposed before all of the universe and all of creation. Satan is now stripped of his authority. Satan has one last resort, and that is to continue to sabotage God's rule and his order. His mission is to attack the earthly manifestations of God's spiritual order and union with creation. Okay, there's two things here. There is what is, and there is what should be. This should be that, and it's not always the same, is it? 
Think of the earthly manifestations of God's order and union with creation. Number one, we have marriage. Okay, I want to remind you what manifest or manifestation means. It means something, let's say something abstract. When you articulate what is in your mind, what is abstract, when you articulate it, it manifests. When you think of something and you build it and you work it out, it is an abstraction here, it is a manifestation physically. The marriage of a man and a woman is the manifestation of the spiritual Christ and his bride, the church. The husband loving his wife as Christ loves the church and the wife submitting to her husband as a representation of the body of Christ submitting to Jesus. And I know we know this. And we are not surprised. But the number one representation in the Bible of Christ and his bride is a man and a woman in marriage. Number two, the family is the manifestation of God's spiritual order in the household. Parents caring for and loving their children. Children submitting to their parents as Christ submitted to his Father. This is a physical outworking or manifestation of God's spiritual rule and order. Number three, the body of Christ, the church. We, somehow, it's, it's amazing, right? We're called the body of Christ. And we say it, it gets cliche, you know, we say it so many times, I think we lose the metaphor. I, I do. We're the body of Christ. We are the representation of Christ on earth. We are his body. We are the manifestation, and the Holy Spirit empowers us to fulfill our role. Last one. Number four. Our stewardship over what God has given us is a manifestation of his rule and his reign over all of creation. See, the kingdom of God that we are a part of that is redeemed men and women, us, diligently managing God's earthly estate. All four of these, these are physical manifestations of a spiritual truth. And this is a rhetorical question, but I, wanted, I just wanted to sit with you while we go through this teaching. If it is not manifested on earth, then what are the implications for the spiritual? What are the implications for the spiritual health of all of creation if it is not manifested on earth? Will we see it? Will we know it? These are all earthly manifestations of God's spiritual rule and reign. And since Satan cannot destroy the spiritual reality in order, he is relegated to attacking the earthly manifestation. This is the reason Paul closes Ephesians with the call to action. We must defend what we have received. Ephesians chapter 6 Verse 10 through 13, the entire letter of Ephesians, if you read it, it's all about our identity. Okay, it starts with God's plan. It start, then it goes to our identity in Christ, who we are. Then it goes to us as a unit, as a body of Christ, who we are. It tells us how to act 
as the body of Christ. Then it breaks it down into the constituent parts. Marriage, family, slaves and masters, which today, in today's context, would be brother to brother, sister to sister, our interrelations. This is Ephesians. Constituent parts. And then, to top it all off, we get this. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. I want you guys to read, starting with me on therefore. One, two, three. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, remain standing. If you read these verses carefully we find that we are not being called to invade an evil domain. We're not invading anything in those verses. Rather, we are instructed to stand and defend the domain we have already been given. Our domain is that which God has given us. Our domain is the divine authority to represent and manifest God's rule and reign through the way we live and love one another. Put simply, we are fighting to defend the physical manifestation of God's rule and reign upon this earth. The war has already been won up there. We are fighting to defend what we have here. The story of Mordecai and Haman in the book of Esther did not end with Haman's execution. And I know it's been a second for a lot of us. We've heard the story, most of us, probably growing up, we heard something about Queen Esther. And for me, I know I never really paid attention to the end of the story. Do you remember the edict Haman sealed with the king's signet ring? Haman I just love that. I don't know where that dude is, but he was so cool. What was that guy's name? Chris. Chris. Yeah, he, he came up with that. Anyways, this edict, which called for the annihilation of the Jewish people in all of the provinces of Persia, could not be unwritten. To do so would suggest that the king had made a mistake. And this is interesting. It was the very same problem. It seems that Darius, Xerxes' father, had the very same problem. Remember, he wrote an edict, and it uh, convicted the, the greatest advisor that King Darius had, which was Daniel. Yeah. And he unwittingly had to send Daniel to the lion's den. Yeah. He couldn't stop it. He had to fulfill the edict. The king's edict would stand, and even though Haman, the nefarious schemer, had been killed, the day of Haman's wrath upon the Jews was still approaching. There was only one thing Mordecai and Esther could do. They inquired of King Xerxes, and they were given the king's signet ring to write and seal another edict. This edict established the sovereign right for every Jewish person to assemble together and fight in order to defend their lives, their family, 
in their property. And I want you to have a context for this. We spoke about it last week a little bit. But the Persian Empire was humongous. I mean, this was not just the city of Susa where the story of Esther happened. I mean, this is an immense empire. Many different languages. Many different nationalities all living together, having been conquered by the Persians. And they live in this immense amount of land. So this is huge. This edict had to make it out to all the corners of the empire before the appointed day came. On the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the Hebrew calendar, that is not our American calendar. I believe that's April 12th, isn't it? The festival of Purim. On the 12th month, the day of Haman's wrath, the Jews now had the authority to stand against the onslaught of violence that was planned against them. And upon the release and proclamation of this edict throughout the kingdom, Jews celebrated across the land. But get this, the day hadn't come yet. They still had to fight, but they were celebrating what they had, right? They were celebrating the prospect. It hadn't manifested yet for them, but they were celebrating the potential and the prospect of what they saw could be. When the day of evil came, the Jews were ready. Fear had seized all those that had opposed the Jews on account of Mordecai, on account of his position and the authority that he had received from King Xerxes. And on the day that their enemies had hoped to overpower them, the Jews banded together and fought back. They stood their ground, and the Bible says that on that day, the Jews killed 75,000 men who came against them. The people of promise had to fight for their promise. The people of the covenant had to defend their covenant rights. The people of God had to stand and resist Satan's attempt to eliminate the representation of God on earth. And I know there are some here, most of us know this, but I want to throw it out there again. Guys, the Old Testament, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people before that, they were chosen to represent God on earth, the people. Therefore, if Satan could destroy them, he would remove the representation of God's rule over the earth. I want to keep this in mind. Now we represent the manifold wisdom of God. Well, what about the Jews? Well, Romans teaches that we are grafted in with them, right? So now we as Gentiles with the Jews represent God's rule and reign on the earth. However, unlike this story in Esther, we do not fight against flesh and blood. Our fight is against rulers and principalities and spiritual realms, we are not crusaders or invaders. And I want you guys to grasp this. Because there's a lot of futility in trying to be an invader in Christ. Christ has already conquered. <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing to invade. It is ours. We are co-heirs with Christ. The Bible says we are conquerors with him. It, we won, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know... 
It's a misconception to think we are invading Satan's domain. Satan has been conquered. Okay. Creation is no longer Satan's domain. It is Christ's domain. We are defending our inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. So you guys probably remember from American history. Um, I mean, forgive us, Lord, for the atrocious sins committed against the people that lived here before us. But you remember from American history that we had outposts, right, on the frontier. They called it the frontier. It was, it was an area that, in name, belonged to the U.S. government. But it wasn't an actuality. There was still many people out on the frontier that would not submit to the authority of the United States. Now, I'm sorry it's not the best metaphor I wanted to use, but it is a metaphor nonetheless. We are an outpost. We are a signpost of a kingdom. Now, it's no longer Satan's domain, but it sure does look like it. It looks like it. We are an outpost. We are a city on a hill. Void of his power and authority over humanity. Satan has one last resort. It is to continue to sabotage and to attack God's rule and his order. His mission is to attack the earthly manifestation of God's spiritual order and union with creation. Esther and Mordecai used the king's signet ring to seal the edict to fight. We have been authorized with a divine sovereign right to defend what we have been given, and it is sealed with the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Would you put slide 12 up? I want us to consider this for a moment. I'm going to give you... Let's say a minute. You can read it in your own Bible if you want, or you can read it from up here. And I want you to consider what this means to you, just for a minute. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and I want, I want you to stop when the day of evil comes, and I want you to close your eyes. You don't have to, but 
It helps me to focus. And I want you to picture in your mind what it is that God has given you to guard and to defend. What is the domain that you are fighting for? Because as children of God, we have been entrusted to take care of what God has given us. I want you to picture in your mind, if you, if you are married, then you're thinking of your wife or your spouse, your husband. If you're a father or a mother, if you have children, then I want you to, to think and dwell upon that, the domain of the family. As brothers and sisters in Christ, the local church, the family of God, I want you to think about the domain we have been entrusted with among our brothers and sisters. I want you to picture what it is physically that God has entrusted to you your apartment, your house, your car, the things that have fallen under your jurisdiction that you are responsible for. Are we manifesting the stewardship of God? And see, here's, here's where we're at in today's day and age. You can keep your eyes shut if you want. We are in a time where we are seeing, beginning to see, the breakdown of society. We are seeing around us marriages failing. I know what I see in the public school system. We are seeing children without mothers or fathers who don't know who don't know how to relate to police. They don't know how to relate to authority. And then we have people in authority who don't know how to relate to them. We are in a world that needs to see light. They need to see a brilliant diamond of hope. It is your domain that is shining bright. It is our marriages in the church that the world is going to see in just 10 or 20 years. I don't know what marriage is going to look like. But in the church, it is our calling and our responsibility to steward and to guard what God has given us because it is going to be what people see in 10 or 20 years. Christian marriages. I don't know what family is going to look like or 10 or 10 or 20 years, but I know that they're going to see Christian families and they're going to say, I want that. I don't know what church is going to look like in 10 or 20 years, but I know that the body that loves and commits and humbles and serves together is going to be a shining light to all that surround.
right now. Dude, could I get some music somewhere? <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate that, man. So right now, some of you are saying, and rightly so, some of us are saying, man, I got a sorry lot. I got a sorry domain. And it's probably true. Because unfortunately, because of our decisions, what was meant to be did not manifest, and in large part because of our decisions. But there is hope. There is hope. So we are not going to allow the lie of Satan to enter into our minds and tell us that that's not your domain anymore. Give it up. Man, just trash it. Start a new domain. We cannot allow the lie of Satan to steal what is rightfully ours. And if it looks like a piece of junk, and it may be, God says it's not a piece of junk. So if that's you and you see it, I see it. I see it in my life. There are domains in my life that I have allowed the weeds to grow up. And I, they're choking out the fruit. And so what I do is I choose to believe that I am an ambassador of Christ and that I stand in authority and that my declaration over my domain will cause what is spiritual to become physical. guys to worship. We're going to worship. We're going to sing a song with Alex. And then in about five minutes, some of the prayer team's going to come up. And we're going to join together and we're going to do, declare the authority that we carry to speak life and to speak structure and order, spiritual order into our physical domains.